Welcome to another edition of the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. I'm your host, Peter, and I am still here. And tonight, I have the honor of sitting down and talking with Jack, a.k.a. JJD, a.k.a. Soft Riot. Soft Riot has a new record dropping in one week entitled No. This is part one of a two-part discussion on his life in music, this album, his other albums, uh, life, music, art, and beauty. I want to thank you all for coming back to us again and again. We are a few weeks away from the 100th episode special. A lot of specials going on here. Uh, I've alluded to everything that is happening within the body of that episode. Basically, what it breaks down to is my old dear friends, Lycia, decided to pitch in and help make something truly spectacular for my 100th episode taking it all the way back to the beginning when I'd first started this. By coming back on and upping the ante by performing live just for us. Just for you. Be on the lookout for that. If you love what you hear, if you dig this show, if you want to hear more, uh, let your friends know. Like, rate, You know, review, subscribe, follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and share my posts. Let people know that you love what we do. I know I say it every week. I can't stop asking this of you or saying it. This is how we ensure that I can continue to give you what you want. I want to thank my friends at Sweet Cheetah for all they do for the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. I want to thank Word for Word Interpretation for all they do. Without further ado, Sweet Cheetah. This episode of the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast has been brought to you by our sponsors at Sweet Cheetah Publicity. Sweet Cheetah is a PR collective that values people over profit. 
they put a different spin on public relations by working primarily with friends and using all profits to aid charitable organizations with a roster that includes Jawbox, The New Amsterdam's, Brainiac, Get Some, Funeral Date, Damien Dunn, and many more artists, record labels, and podcasts. Sweet Cheetah! That's a great PR cohort. You can find them on social media by simply searching Sweet Cheetah PR, and they'll be there. He's been Tim, I've been Peter, and Sweet Cheetah has been beautiful. Right off the uh, right off the bat, I, I want to ask you because every time I've ever listened to your music in the past decade, oh wow, I, th- I think to myself, yo, he likes Oingo Boingo, he likes Danny Elfman. You must like Danny Elfman. I do like him, but I never listened to him. Really? Yeah, I mean, obviously, diegetically, I'll listen to you know, like he's obviously done a lot of soundtracks. Mm-hmm. And I used to have a VHS copy of that uh, concert uh, video. Uh, I think it's called Erg Music War. Yeah. And it has like Gang of Four, the cramps and stuff on it. And I'm very familiar. There is like sort of like this, I guess maybe there's this Oingo Boingo quirkiness where things change around. It's a bit angular. So I get where that's coming from. Uh, like if anything, I just get Gary Newman all the time. The second thing was Gary Newman. <laughs> But, but the third was Alien Sex Fiend. Oh, that's an interesting one. No, these are good, interesting choices because everybody says something different. Mm-hmm. Like, you remind me of this uh, obscure band I used to listen to when I was uh, growing up in Wales or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, I, I guess from um, the hair, people always say I look like Gary Newman. The weirdest one I've got is a friend of mine says, You look like Patrick Dempsey. Patrick Dempsey. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's, get, kind of, that's different. I would never expected that as a comparison, but you know, it, it gets you laid, maybe. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, I haven't really followed Patrick Dempsey since. Uh, what were some? Of, I don't remember any of his eighties films, but I know he's in. Was he in ER or something? Uh, 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 Grey's Anatomy. Right. That's it. I knew it was one of those hospital drama shows or whatever. So. 
I've never watched an episode, but uh, one of oh, my, my I neither went on and on about Patrick Dempsey on that show. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's uh, one thirty in the morning here. I actually had a nap. Oh wow! Because I've been getting up like super early lately. Um, well, not. Well, I work from home, so like the I don't need this travel time thing. So I've been getting up at seven a.m. Sometimes six thirty, and because I'm my job right now as a graphic designer, web developer is like insanely busy, which is weird for this time of year because in previous years it used to be my quiet time because mm-hmm. people, oh, I'm going on holiday, but now it's just busy all the time, and that, and I've been doing all the promotion on this new record so by the time i'm done it's like seven or eight at night <laughs> it's ridiculous wow. but i'm I, like i'm taking off to uh there's this uh island near glasgow called the isle of butte and i'm going i'm escaping from town tomorrow because my a friend of mine's got a cottage over there and i'm like i'm desperate to get out of the city and just like not be around computers <laughs> Or anything like that. So, well, good, good on you because I don't see a vacation in my immediate future. <laughs> yeah, and no, I, I, I barely traveled this year compared to other years. I mean, even just for holidays and stuff, it's just been so much going on. It's less about, <clears throat> it's less about maybe time. Oh no! <laughs> so yeah, no. It's like this is like super casual, very easy to do. It's it, it takes me about two hours to get there, so we fine. But I was like, I jumped at the opportunity to get out of town. So I can't say I blame you, but um, <laughs> my goodness, you've been doing this project now currently since uh, what is it like two thousand and nine? Was it? Um, well, I, I put the official start time at the beginning of 2011, but I was actually doing it since 2006 when I was still living in Vancouver. It wasn't even like, it wasn't even a band. It was just me experimenting with stuff that didn't really work with the bands I was playing in the time. So I was, or, and also it's like uh, a vehicle to learn how to do more additional production on my own. I did do one show. It was under a name, JJ wax, which is my two initials and the uh, wax being from the design name I was using at the time. And I did one show in Vancouver with two of my friends um, one, my friend Lindsay, I used to play with in Radio Blinn, and another local mm-hmm. musician, Steve Ballow. I just did one show. And then after that, I probably went in 2006. And then after that, like the, the following year, my music started winding down a bit because it's like, I'm moving to the UK and I've got no freaking time to do <laughs> like all these bands. <laughs> so I put it on ice for a while, and then I was doing music in London. And then it was all of a sudden like, late 2010 i was kind of just going through all these songs i've been working on like in like really piecemeal and where gaps would be like eight months between working on them and i was 
thinking I should probably do something with this. And then I just finished those tracks, wrote a few new ones. And then um, my friend Constantine, he runs this little web label called Panaspria. And I was just like, I'll just maybe see if he likes it. He put it out. And I, I was not planning to do anything with it. it. I don't want to say it was a side project, but it was definitely like not intended to play live originally. And then it just sort of became more of my interest as the band I was playing in in London at the time started to uh, like kind of fade out, I guess, for, mm-hmm. lack of, for lack of a better description. So, and then by mid... 2012 i was starting to tour with it and i was like i guess this is my main band now (laughs) i mean just me obviously but it wasn't like a big announcement when i started it just gradually got there so it it seems like though every release has carried with it uh an increase in popularity for you um because as i'd said 10 years ago when i'd first started hearing of you you know, it was, people knew of it, but mm-hmm. it, it was in more rarefied circles. Oh, uh, yeah, and, and with I think the style was different, too. So. Yeah, like, very much so. And um, I think what had happened is the world kind of caught up with you. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't, don't want to say come from the future or something. But it's, it's also, <laughs> like, there's also been, like, a logical progression with it. I think because my mission when I started, I was, I think I was in the mindset was like, okay, I've been in all these bands for a while where I'm really high energy and usually results with me rolling around on the floor or something, mm-hmm. or screaming to a microphone. It's like, I'm going to be adult and do something that's kind of minimal psychedelic. Even my vocal style was different, but the whole learning process was based on the fact that, um, I had never played with that instrumentation before and then trying to sing at the same time. Because usually in bands before, it's like I play guitar one song and then bass and then maybe a bit of keyboard one song. But here I was with four keyboards and a mixer trying to sing at the same time. So a lot of maybe the progression was sort of uh, informed by my getting more familiar with that sort of setup too. Yeah. Um, just but, because it's like it was a definite learning curve, but I think in in all reality, where you and kind of ended up, it still seems to me that uh, you know the underground music scene at large has certainly moved toward something akin to what you're doing. Oh uh, yeah, definitely. Especially, I've even noticed it in the last ten years. I mean, I mean. Even when I was doing my old brand, Radio Berlin, in the yeah. late in the '90s, early 2000s, like back then, it was like it wasn't so many smaller genres. It was like gothy post-punk revival, you know, ex-hardcore kids. And now it's like yeah. so many. Even when I started playing live a lot ten years ago, there are so many more bands in that general sound, and it, there's so many like most genres of music now, there's like so many little nuanced subgenres. Yeah. Like, you know, back 30, 40 years ago, there was like punk, there was like new wave, 
you know, rock. Nowadays, there's like, you know, tropical, tropical punk or, you know, like, <laughs> like neo witch house and stuff like that. But what did we really have? We had, you know, there was punk and then it became hardcore. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, hardcore definitely went in its own strange ways, too. But alongside of it was always the whole what people would call goth, but it's post-punk. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's kind of always been there via New Wave. Radio Berlin had that. I remember Radio Berlin, too, but I didn't realize. It's weird. I did not realize that when I heard Softright that it was the same person from Radio Berlin. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's just also the shift that I've moved continents to. Um, I mean, I got into, uh, I got into punk and hardcore in my early teens, but prior to that, I had been living in really small towns on Vancouver Island in Western Canada. So the idea of going to a show or being exposed to that stuff was, was very difficult because, I mean, you know, I remember in the eighties watching like, like, you know, um, like Woodstock or that Monterey pop festival, you know, seeing like, you know, Jimi Hendrix on stage. And I was like, that looks really interesting, but I never really clued in that that's something that I could do because it was just so culturally removed. Cause in the, yeah. the town I grew up until I was 10 or 11, there was like nothing going on. It was like 200, you know, two and a half hour drive away from next town. And um, it was just, I mean, it only had really like one grocery store, right? So the, any, anything I was getting musically during that time was film soundtracks of stuff I was watching. And looking back on it, it was a lot of like stuff like Tangerine Dream or uh, uh, Howard Shore, yeah. um, stuff like that. Um, bits of pop music I'd hear on the radio. Um, my, my mom and my stepdad got together in the late eighties and he was really into that, what I call like that sort of, um, adult pop prog from the early eighties. Like he was really into rush R and, rush. Yeah. Yep. And saga and yes. And Asia. Asia. And all that. <laughs> so I think maybe a bit of that kind of seeped into my bloodstream at some point, you know, uh, like. I, I think my four would really suit this part than going into a four four, you know, like <laughs> I, I always make the argument for rush. I, before I was into anything, I loved rush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, they're a great band. I mean, <laughs> I could see why like their seventies output might be a little bit of a tall glass for some people just because the vocals are so high and the songs, you know, go on for like 50 minutes, but when they got into like, the 80s, they sort of balanced things out a little bit. And even when they were doing this sort of like pop synth thing, they did it in a very intelligent sort of way. It still might not be everybody's taste, but I, I, when I first heard it, I was kind of in, you know, you're a kid and you're a sponge. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And like the, the, lyric, the, the lyrical topics were more appealed to me because, you know, a lot of, synth pop stuff is all about love and romance and you know is she the one or blah 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 but they're singing about like nuclear war and like technology and, and alienation know. because the song yeah, exactly. subdiv subdivisions is all about being a, a kid in you know junior high or whatever feeling mm -hmm. 
like that big and under the microscope and being picked on. It, it, it was the perfect music for that time period for, you know, people like us, because obviously if we gravitated to hardcore, we needed somewhere to go that wasn't our, the people that we went to school with normally. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, that's the main reason why I was moved out of the town I grew up until I was 10 or 11 because my mom was, I mean, I talked to her recently and she was telling me, this was, you know, 88, 89. And she's saying the reason that we moved out was because your sister we were fine with because she was in a sports and kind of very social, but I was like artistic and kind of a little bit more removed. And yeah. my mom thought continuing to live in this town, if I went into my teenage years, I'd probably go down this route where there's no outlet and maybe getting to some like dodgy things. And I, I seem to remember going back for a, a visit to that town a year later in my last visit there. And I saw like an old friend of mine from elementary school and he'd like, he kind of really changed a lot, like really quiet, kind of hashery. I don't know. I kind of maybe thought he maybe probably went down a path that maybe led him in some wrong way. I kind of think that had a big impression on me. So when I moved to the next town, um, Courtney, which it took me a cup, like two or three years, mainly because I was at that, um, you, know, you know, getting into my early teens. And then it was kind of the right size town to get into like sort of punk and skateboarding and stuff. This has been like 92. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of broke out of my shell a bit more. And that's when, like that year of 92 to 93 was like a massive period of acceleration from like kid hanging out as, on his own, writing little stories in a book to like, you know, jamming with music with friends, meeting other people my age that were getting into that culture and discovering bands like, hey, have you heard these guys? Have you heard these guys? And there was such like a massive learning curve within that year. So it was, yeah, definitely it was a good move on my mom's part. So thanks, mom. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that your your mother is uh, that's a saintly human right there to take yeah, yeah. you know the, you into consideration uh, so greatly, you know, and and with such care. That's phenomenal. I think I think her, with her and my stepdad, I think they were looking for a change too because everybody in the small town knew each other, and I think. It was like a case of we're going to get a fresh start somewhere new, somewhere there's more going on, somewhere there's more job opportunities. Because the town I was in was like very resource based, like it's a forestry town. We even have a road called Twin Peaks Road. Oh, wow. <laughs> People are always like, where you're from must be like Twin Peaks. I'm like, yeah, there's actually a Twin Peaks Road. That's wonderful. <laughs> so. Radio, but I, I before I move on to current things, um, mm -hmm. I saw Radio Berlin in oh Canada, really in Where Canada in uh, it was in Vancouver. Um, oh, wow, what is the name of that club? You were playing with most of them are probably gone now because uh, Vancouver is a uh, very very into its gentrification. But Platts uh, yeah. Pub, the Piccadilly, there was a bunch of them. They're all gone. I think Pat's Pub's still there, but what brought, brought you to Vancouver for that trip? Um, we were going to see uh, five different shows in a week and a half period, mm -hmm. uh, and we were just heading north and hitting all these shows, and you guys were on our list. Oh, so wow. 
you, you were the furthest north we went, <laughs> and then we started to make our way back. I, that was, my life was very much uh, show centric at at that time period, and I believe you guys had barely been together more than maybe like two years at that point. Yeah, so this probably would have been around the turn of the millennium, I guess. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because we started in 98. Yeah. And then officially ended in 2005, but kind of ceased activity in 2004 because we were having a bit of a identity crisis. (laughs) (laughs) But it was like nothing to do with us internally in the band, we all got on really well. I'm super lucky about that because we went on many long tours and you always hear these mental tour stories about bands not talking in the van or having a punch up at the gas station. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but we were just like, we were like really reading or just needed some private time or whatever. So we just respected each other's space. But I think that band just sort of ended, I think, because we were kind of being swept up in that whole post-punk revival hype at the time. And yeah. there was all these things. We had all come from like this punk hardcore scene. So it was kind of a bit weird for us. And we, we thought the whole thing was a bit kind of hilarious. Mm-hmm. Sure. Just because you're like, you're used to doing stuff in this underground network and then all of a sudden you're being maneuvered to move in with all this industry stuff happening at the time and this like sort of post strokes era or stroke era and you're just like you know hey this guy manages this band and to me it all felt very spinal tap (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of spinal tappy moments on that tour of just like you're, or like, what's that film? I just rewatched it recently. Decline of Western Civilization Part Two. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's just like all these like kind of industry stereotypes, and we we'd all have a laugh at it. But we, but yeah, we just kind of came from a different kind of universe. Like we didn't really have this sort of careerism that some bands did. We were just doing it because we started as a band. Let's you know write some different music and you know play shows and you know go on tour and meet people. That was kind of where our thing was at. But I mean, towards the end of it, we were like, we were trying to record a new record. We were on this label called Discoloration out of the UK. Mm-hmm. Didn't really last for that long. And they were, it was run by a guy that worked at Rough Trade. And we we're like, oh my goodness, we might go to the UK. And we started working on it. But I think for us, it was, trying to figure out which direction we wanted to go. And I was kind of being reactionary. He's like, let's make it more angular and fucked up. And then Chris, the other guitarist, is like, I want to kind of do more of this, uh, for lack of a better term, this 80s guitar pop thing. We tried everything out, and then we just kind of couldn't make up our minds. And then I remember just like a year later, after you know, spits and furts of trying to, spits and starts, rather, of trying to do this, <laughs> just met up one month and Chris like, I think it's kind of over, isn't it? I was like, yeah, it's fine. And that was it. Well, at the very least, uh, <laughs> it, it, it had the, the, the good sense to disintegrate instead of turning all of you against one another. 
Which, no, I don't. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. Everybody's dragging each other through the meat grinder, trying to achieve some unrealistic aim that maybe was isn't an. It's not a natural push in any way whatsoever. It's like forcing yourself to walk into a giant like coal fire or something. <laughs> but what I find really, um, it, it, the prescient point is. Soft right actually does make sense uh, in, when you think of what you had done with Radio Berlin, but it, to me, was more experimental, A, mm-hmm. and, and, and B, it, was, it, it had more of a bite. There was something very, uh, in the beginning especially, very venomous almost about what you were doing vocally specifically. In uh, Soft Riot? Yeah. Because well, there, there was yeah. there was like a like a, a subdued animosity, like smart ass. Oh yeah, I I'm kind of glad you say that because um, a few people picked up on it. It's definitely a, a even more even so now, but at the time was definitely about like a sort of a, a tension. Like it's kind of like I think the equivalent I could think of is when there's like the sort of like settling unease in a like a film mm. where you can hear the strings starting to go up a little bit. And but it doesn't quite get to the 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 shock moment. It's just kind of like it's just this con. There's like any. Get, I'm trying to. I can't think of a film example right now. But it was just like this general unease through it, and it never quite blows out. And yeah, I think, like those long drawn out Kubrickian. Uh, yeah, there's a good example. Very Kubrickian, without like necessarily going for the the big shock and horror moment it's just like something wrong here and you can't figure out what it is um but that's that's definitely the atmosphere i was going for and probably maybe more inspired by that than any sort of actual musical references it was more of a feeling it was like oh i want to sound like this and this there's obviously touch points i was going with there but it was definitely that kind of feeling of unease a bit and what what the um the content lyrically also in the beginning had a uh a, a very poetic feel but in, in not in like a a rhyme and meter love poem style certainly there there was a stream of consciousness <laughs> uh aspect to it which was had, was and I have an english degree that was always the 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 written word that the prose that I was most attracted to, stream of consciousness, uh, somewhere on the edge of madness almost, but a, a reined in, subdued yeah. madness. I think, I think for me, it, a lot of it comes from like, I've noticed in this, the circles I kind of play with now, like, and just based on my background growing up and sort of like the punk and stuff of the 90s, like there isn't so much, people just kind of don't really pay attention to lyrics. I mean, I, to some degree, I can understand that because um, a lot of this music's international, so there's a large majority of people doing this kind of music where they're singing English, but it's not the first language. Right. So that really makes sense. Now, if anything, I like it when, even though I might have to ask someone to translate it for me, I like it when I hear bands singing in their own language and have a nice mastery of it. Yeah. But I, I think for me, like... Um, it's just like kind of growing up with really good lyric writers. Like, I mean, there's tons of them from that era. Like even like Jay Robbins, he was writing some nicely 
nice kind of abstract sort of phrases that didn't necessarily make sense, but sounded really nice when you kind of, yeah, what's a Chinese nice fork tongue? Like, not nice isn't like your grandma will like it, but you know, it's like, that's a really clever way of putting that together. Yeah. Or there's a lot of songwriters in that period. And the audiences at that time were putting more focuses on lyrics because, you know, that whole scene had this sort of political buzz around it. So people are wanting to read what, the singers were saying, you know, and obviously a lot of records came out of time. They were had like lyric sheets. Some of them went to the, the extent of putting explanations for the lyrics and the lyric sheets. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was some of my favorite stuff actually. Um, what, like the straight edge hardcore band from Canada, who's my, probably my favorite, like hard handed straight edge band chokehold. Oh, they're from Ottawa. Yeah. They have that. dissertations inside of, of like content with dying. There was like it had a booklet almost like a, a legitimate yeah. novella. I love that. Yeah, I have that heart attack compilation that Me they're too. on. Me too. Um, I haven't listened to it in ages, but I remember you know, heart like that label Ebullition was they'd always that, put so much extra stuff and like this is how I was feeling when I wrote the record. And you know, I'm like a confessional to those who had bought the record, like it was a very nice package. They always. I mean, it was always very DIY, kind of newsprint looking, but they always oh, had yeah. some interesting stuff in those packages. My favorite band from Ottawa was probably that time was Shotmaker. Shotmaker, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was, think I, I still listen to them now, and I think the reason they stand out for me is, is the drummer, Matt DeLine. Like, a, a lot of drummers in that time period were using this sort of, um, obviously come from like that 80s punk metal kind of style of drumming whereas his was super simple it was almost very post-punk mm -hmm. it's like the kicks constantly going on boom 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 and there was always like this pumping drum effect and I, I still listen to it now and it sounds like really like no one else you can just pick up oh that's drop maker that kind of clangy bass line and this sort of kicking kick drum that goes under the whole music or whatever so and then obviously yeah there's another band from there okara that i was really yeah. into as well so yeah, there's Vancouver's put out, or I mean, sorry, Canada's put out some, uh, you know, little flashes in the pan here and there. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, lo look at Fucked Up, they are still doing it, you know? Oh um, yeah, yeah. Definitely. I, I thought that, you know, having, having known back then that you came from this scene, I always found it refreshing and interesting that you never pandered to it either. It was just like a, a touch point for you. It's like, okay, this is... An well, I think at the time I, I was in that scene, but I was a bit too young to really make anything that was notably, like a notable contribution to it. Because by the time I started doing Radio Berlin, this was like 98, I was like 19. Yeah. And so I was moving out of that scene, but like from... The time I was 14 to 15, I was quite active. Like, none of my bands really got anywhere because I'm from a small town and we were, like, still fumbling around fucking trying to figure out what we were doing. Yeah. But I was, I was kind of voraciously consuming a lot of records. I was putting on shows in my town. You know, I was going to shows in, like, Victoria and Vancouver and, you know, kind of, like, just looking through, you know, like, Heart Attack magazine or, you know, back in the days when you could, like, touch and go records of those massive fold-out mail-order things. Like, I want that, I want that, I want that. And I just, mm -hmm. like, definitely, like, going to the record stores, mail-ordering, I was, like, really into that. But, but by the time I'd actually gotten some traction doing stuff musically, I kind of 
started going in other directions. But it's still, that's to see, like, you know, it's a, quite a, an impressionable age. And there was uh, so much inspiring stuff going on at the time. It's still kind of, it's kind of weird because when I moved to the UK in 2007, like, fucking nobody knows any of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Fugazi, that, that song Waiting Room I heard at the pub last night. You know? Oh, yeah, everybody. Like, do you know anything <laughs> off repeater? <laughs> well, I, having said that, there are some people here. Like, one of my good friends, Delaney, he grew up with a lot of stuff. He was in a band called Sworn In on Bridge Nine. Yeah, I remember. And they were, like, one of the rare English straight-edge bands. Mm-hmm. Like here, it's like the idea, especially in Scotland, the idea of straight edge is just totally like, what fucking planet? <laughs> well, I mean, we're talking about the UK at large, which, you know, is comprised of Ireland. I'm, I'm half Irish. I know yeah. all about it. I've been to where my family's from. Mm -hmm. uh, Scotland and to a lesser extent, England, mm -hmm. where, and even Wales, where like, if you're old enough to reach the bar, it's, you can kind of go in and have a pint. And as long as you keep your mouth shut, it's good. It's just, it's just so much more of like a, like an, like a traditional ingrained lifestyle choice. I mean, obviously there was pubs when I went in Vancouver, but here it's like, Oh, going to the local, you know, like it's just, it's just like more of a natural thing. I've still haven't really, been over here for 16 years and still haven't latched on to this pub thing but you know I, mm -hmm. I totally understand its importance in this culture but as I said when I first moved to London like it was probably because I was doing more electronic music at times so it's kind of gravitating towards people in London that were doing that but a lot of the stuff I kind of grew up with and even when I was in Radio Blinn like because that band was all based off this extended network of that scene yeah you know even like bands like what's that what's that band antarctica oh you just like brought was, uh, one of the antarctica. front drive yes it was yeah, they're yeah. one of my all-time favorite fucking bands oh my god yeah i remember buying that first ep in 98 and there's all these like bands that kind of came out of that scene like every some people went the more like sort of Americana route. Some went the more the garage rock route. Some mm -hmm. went more of this sort of um, post rock route. And then some bands went this more sort of like kind of influenced by probably the music they were growing up in the eighties. So you had these little stems breaking off. Yeah. So like, and then, but even when the duration of our tenure in Radio Blend, a lot of our connections were through that scene, like our booking agent did stuff for Kill Rock Stars. We were kind of playing with lost kind of bands. But when I moved over here, that just was like, it was like slamming into a brick wall and starting all over again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like no one fucking knew anybody. That was what I was talking about. So it was, it was a massive wake up call coming over here, actually. Definitely. Does it operate the same way, even as because Canada and the United States certainly have. Uh, almost, I, I don't, I hasten to call it incestuous, but there is certainly a very close knit and far reaching network of people who know people who know people who could get your shows who, and, and like, you know, you could find like a homie in every town almost. Yeah. You know, I think I, I was kind of doing some, probably on like reading more, like listening to more podcasts and like reading like some articles lately, like a lot of like that North American touring scene was kind of established in the eighties. Yeah. Actually, I've been reading this book called you're with stupid. 
Yes. Which is written by Bruce Adams, used to run Cranky. Yeah. And obviously, I was into some of those bands, like especially like Le Bradford and like Low and like, yes. uh, what's, uh, there's a few others that, Wendy and Carl, stuff like that. But then, you know, I was like, listen to a bit of the Seed Cake and, you know, touches on like Touch and Go and like how that scene got the notoriety it did due to sort of logistics, like cheap mm. rent being already having distribution there. But um, it was just like a lot of this touring network was just kind of started by bands playing around and kind of keeping in touch who did what. You obviously had that, that publication, Book Your Own Fucking Life. That everybody Which, would. yeah. <laughs> Still have but, mine, absolutely. I find in the UK here, it's a, at least... I, from my perspective of as a foreigner, the, the music industry, the, that system here is a lot more, I'm trying to think of a way to put this. It's a lot more who you know slash industry oriented. In the UK for me, on a, as an observation as a foreigner, is, is a lot more different than the rest of Europe. Like, I think a part of it has to do with that the UK has been such like a, like sort of like a foundation stone for popular culture music, you know, yeah. since, I mean, 60s when Beatles and Rolling Stones and all that were taken off. And, and that in turn sort of built all these sort of kind of uh, music industry organizations. Like, like, you know, for like, just to make a difference, like if I try to play somewhere like, I don't know, like, Belgium or Italy, it's a lot easier for me to reach out to promoters directly than is in the UK. In the UK, is like a lot of the venues are run by like a promotion company. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to go through them and they're like really finicky about who they want. And like I've actually found it harder to play meet shows throughout the UK. Like I can go to Europe out for like a week or so and then here it's just a lot more difficult especially last over the 10 years over the last 10 years and when i noticed when i was in london there was this shift to these sort of like promoter run venues yeah whereas prior to that you could just be a local band and say i want to book this venue this night and i want to do my own show but now no you have to go through this this new this new london organization and the these organizations would kind of pick bands based on popularity or whether or not they'll kind of draw a crowd or whatever. So yeah, like the UK is way more, that is way more of a thing here than like I've noticed than in North America or Europe. I think it's just the fact that it's just been such a beacon of music for like so long. Like everybody here is in a band. You look at the adverts on the news, there'll be like an ad for a bank. And the case study is like, like I'm an electronic rock drummer, and I need to get to the shows. You know, so you're like taking a loan out at the bank, like so. It's like such a popular, like music here is such a popular culture thing. You know, like even when you're like working in a corporate office, you're always talking, "What bands are you into?" Blah 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 blah. Or maybe less so in North America. Yeah, yeah. It's it's actually a rarity for me to connect with anyone like I'm a plumber by trade and mm -hmm. um, it's sad with an English degree I'm a plumber and I make more money doing it than if I were applying my trade <laughs> that yeah. I found to school for but um, in all of my uh, cohorts at work n none of them 
really understand uh, anything about where, like, culturally, musically, where I come from, or, you know, even have uh, any kind of idea of anyone else in their circle had anything to do with. I, I'm almost alien to them, and it's it's interesting. I be I've become like their teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it must be weird when you're kind of working in any profession and someone goes, oh, so what are you into? And you suddenly get mildly defensive. <laughs> like, you're like, well, again, what are they going to think? <clears throat> so like, I mean, I get that here randomly. Too. I mean, I, I have a different scenario because I don't really deal with the public. I've been doing graphic design and all that stuff for about as long as I've been doing music. And uh, what, I, what is incredible to me is you have... You you wear a lot of different hats <laughs> as a, a you know musician. Jack and, of all and, trades. That's my name. <laughs> <laughs> you 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 involve yourself in 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 like you know video and 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 the arts. The arts are just basically like all encompassing for you. Every almost every facet of the arts. It, you it have, could be you problematic do. though, because a lot of it's based on me just sitting around thinking about stuff and like I'm going to do a zine. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Wait a sec. I have no fucking time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because you, you've already, you know, put your time at a premium with, with other endeavors. Oh, it's, I'm, I'm terrible with that, actually. I mean, I I've gotten better with, as, with it as I've gotten older. Like, I'm like seeing what I want to do and then mentally pitching it. And it's like, this isn't going to work. There's only 24 hours in a day. <laughs> so unless they bend the laws of physics to make it maybe like 32, this ain't going to be happening. <laughs> And that, that, that need to sleep is just, that's such a hindrance. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Definitely. I'm actually pretty good. Like, I mean, when I was younger, I used to burn the candle at both ends quite a lot more, but I, oh, I, think, yeah. I think now I value the sort of, I don't know how I want to put this. I don't want to say the negative space, but I value a lot more like the downtime moments. And not only just because of rest, but it allows my mind to wander a bit. I find if I'm like super busy, I'm not that creative. I mean, yes, creative in a conceptual way. Like I can still like, I need a poster or I need to like finish mixing this track or I need to do this. But in terms of like trying to actually have a vision of where I want to go with something, it doesn't happen when I'm like, like, you know, I've got 15 minutes to do this and I have to run and do this and that and that like, like, if I have, like, time where it's slow, that's when my mind starts filling in the spaces and I start getting some interesting ideas. So yes. I, need to, I need to value that. Even if it's just, like, hanging out with friends and having, like, fun time and a conversation or going for, like, a walk on the, on the beach somewhere. Like, I mean, I get really inspired by landscapes, so that helps when I actually have time to, like, do these things. I mean, I think nowadays, like... It always seems to be like there's this focus on constantly creating content. Yeah. Especially as a musician, you know, like you need to like post something every day and, you know, like even like read like articles from like people, like all these streaming services. If you want to keep your audience engaged, you need to release a song every time. It's like, what happens if I'm not in the fucking mood? What happens if I'm yeah. like, I need to like actually sit back and wait for the wave and I, I know when these waves come for me and a lot of them are generated by having this sort of malleable space yeah because you need breathing room you need to shut off you need the television off you need 
you know, I, I could come up with ideas that are, are, are com run completely counter to if I'm, let's say, reading mm -hmm. a book by someone else. I've often found the muse via just reading someone else's work and then something comes to me and I could plop that book down and go because the, the reason being when you're reading everything else is turned off and yeah, all, exactly. all, although I am you know absorbing this information via the written word my mind is still operating in other directions also which is probably why I'm strange <laughs> But in the same, I, I think we all kind of fit in that sort of general category, which is so, good. I mean, it's not a negative connotation in any way. No, I like being no. strange. I prefer it. I prefer it. Strange club. <laughs> <laughs> I feel. I feel wanted here. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm, I'm the same way with reading. I I kind of go through spikes with it. Lately, I've been like going through a lot of reading because I've been really interested in non-fiction books a lot of them lately are music as mentioned this year was stupid book then i yeah. also read will Sargent from echo and the bunnyman's memoir mm. on, on the recommendation of friend and i was like i'm skeptical i don't know if this can be good but his style of writing is just so like like cerebral on earth it's less about the band like about the band it's more about like his growing up and a lot of the stories are what we call relatable you know like yeah growing pains going to concerts figuring out how to play an instrument blah 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 and then before that i was reading that i actually i did a second reread re of it was that um uh, mutations book by Sam McFeeters. Oh, Sam McFeeters comes up on this podcast almost always, every episode. I know he's like he's like got an honorary guest slot, and he hasn't even fucking put his voice in a microphone here yet. <laughs> but I, I was a fan of his writing. I think he used to do this zine back in the '90s called Error. Yes, which was like a massive newsprint thing. Yeah. I don't. I have a copy of it still somewhere in my filing cabinet. I have a bunch. Where it is. Yeah, and I always liked the record reviews because they had nothing to do with the fucking music. <laughs> yeah, never, but never. This seven-inch, well, we drove over it with a truck a few times <laughs> then tried playing it, and it still worked, you know? <laughs> that, that was um, the joy, though, of characters. Uh, mm -hmm. we, in, in, in our scene, we had characters. We had people who were almost mythical, uh, oh yeah, for uh, sure. Sam McFeeters be, being one of the most mythical, uh, especially considering uh, Men's Recovery Project almost basically almost killed me because they backed their van up to the club that they were playing in and they ran a hose from the exhaust pipe of said I've van. I've a few weird stories about them. Like, I don't even know if these, how twisted these have been with... Um, with uh, sort of like the, the chain of people telling story, story. Like I heard a venue, like show they just ran through a venue and threw garbage everywhere and left. But I don't know yeah. if it's true or not. And I have a bunch of stories like this myself where I'm like, I'm telling someone the story and I'm like, I don't even know if this is factually accurate anymore. <laughs> but I like to think that's the way it's told. And, you know, and then I've kind of realized this is how humans have been telling stories for thousands of years and probably why maybe you get all these situations where like something that happened in biblical times comes out the other end sounding completely <laughs> different. There was a massive, like, uh, you know, like, uh, 
light in the sky and but it was actually someone just throwing like a stick with fire on it you know yeah <laughs> but i like this story actually mm-hmm. happened because i talked about it on this podcast with a person who was in that band and they were like oh yeah and you know what i wasn't in the band at the time but i know about that story and it was in scranton pennsylvania i was like yeah that was the show <laughs> okay yeah so it really went down but you know i just like we had, you know, on the less intellectual end of the spectrum, Gigi Allen, like the punk scene can only be the only place that could contain personalities as oh, yeah, wild definitely. and large as this. And I think, I think it also goes into like a more a microcosmic local scale. Like every sort of scene had like, you know, like it's sort of characters whether they might be a, a topic of discussion out of ec- like their eccentricity or just the f- like what they did creatively within that scene. I mean, certainly in where I'm from, like Vancouver, Victoria had a share of characters that were on that smaller scale. And it's likely every city around the world is, you know, oh, he used to play in this band. You, I got to tell you a crazy story about him. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I'm in this area. I'm one of those people, sadly, I think. But, you know, then, like, there was a nickname that I was known as back then. And if you meet anyone in this area who's associated with the hardcore scene at that time, and you say, Pete the Witch to anyone, they will know that it's me. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. Wow, you've kind of made a name for yourself. <laughs> I, I was just, I was the whack, I was that whack job. You I might guess. also know me as Pete the Witch. Oh, <laughs> of course I know you. <laughs> <laughs> You're that guy. Uh, I but, mean, I was kind of a little bit like that in the Vancouver scene, like I was, cause I kind of straddled this sort of goth scene a bit in the Indian hardcore scenes. And I had like Pete, big Pete ass Witch. hair, Pete the witch. <laughs> and I was hanging out with Pete the witch. We were kind of like doing a long distance thing, but it was kind of weird when I moved to, when I moved to the UK, that all got fucking destroyed. It was such like a weird way. Cause I mean, I moved to London in the UK without even going to Europe before. There's a lot of reasons for that. It was like a relationship I was in. And also I was about to turn 30 and I was kind of, it's funny now cause I'm like 45 and I'm like thinking that I was having like a midlife crisis at 30. Yeah. Well, 30 is <laughs> traumatic. I'm sorry for men. I, I know uh, for, for uh, different uh, genders, it, it happens differently, but I think men, at 30 it it is kind of dramatic in a way and you do kind of reach for something that's almost it's almost like reactionary like i have to do fucking something i'm 30 i need to buy an indian motorcycle yes route 66 (laughs) (laughs) no but i think for me it was just it was probably partially that but it was also just circumstances of like relationships and stuff at the time like like I have the partner I was with at the time was like kind of got this fixated in this idea of moving to the UK. And ever since I was a kid, I was, you know, my, my dad's side, it's my dad's granddad is from Portsmouth and my, a lot of my mom's family are kind of Irish, Scottish. There's a bit of first nations in there, but I've never really figured out where that is. Because mm-hmm. my mom's side of the family is a bit more mysterious in terms of the background, but but anyway, we moved to I moved to London, and just like that whole that whole sort of connection got 
totally like connections with friends, connections with this network I'd been involved with since I was like my teenager just totally got a, like obliterated. And it, yeah. it was like a mate, like my first move there was like, it was kind of amazing kind of being able to be like this weird blank template. Not like I changed personality or anything, but you, you definitely had this thing where no one knows who you are. Yeah. <laughs> but also the first year and a half was also, so you have this, no one knows who you are. You're going on all these like, ins, like amazing things in London and nightclubs. But on the other hand, you're like in brutal poverty the first year and a half. Yeah. So it's like a really like, like sort of massively puke inducing seesaw. <laughs> first moved. And then I finally found some grounding there after a year and a half. And that's when I met, my friend, like, I started meeting my friends. I started playing music. I, as I mentioned earlier, I had a friend that grew up in hardcore, um, that band um, Sworn In. Like, Sworn he, in his, yeah. old band, his old band, um, they were called Crystal Wrist. They were signed to the same label that Radio Berlin was when, right before we broke up. And then after all this, like, turbulence first moving there, I found myself living in a weird house and zone three of london with two dudes i didn't even know and i was like no nothing going on musically feeling pretty shitty and then i was like i should give this guy a call and see if he wants to do music hey you might remember me from like five years ago do you want to do some music he's like yeah let's do something and then then that's when the kind of like the fulcrum shifted and i started meeting a lot of new people and starting to feel like i'd made maybe not like the ultimate right choice in my life, but also, but like an adventurous choice that ended up working out for the good, right? Yeah, and that a lot of people, a lot of people move places and with like expectations of what they might expect when they move there, but then it ends up not turning out to be the way they wanted to for reasons perhaps outside their own control or just the fact that they just can't figure out how to adapt to it. And so that that phone call. Uh, in all honesty, probably gave impetus to what we know as Soft Riot currently. Yeah, I would, like this, this, this project I was doing was a short-lived band I was in called Savage Furs. Um, it was me and Delaney working on the music. He was, he was a vocalist. Like, he was probably one of the weirdest vocalists because he was really into like his 80s pop stuff like David Sylvian and and um, Peter Murphy and stuff, but his lyrical sort of slant came from bands like the Blood Brothers and Get yeah. Hostile, like very Salvador yeah. Dali fucked up, like nonsensical kind of stuff. Yeah. So he was a very interesting lyricist to work with. And then from there, we just started playing around and started meeting people in London. And yeah, things kind of worked out in the end, I guess, for lack of a better term i mean i guess i could have the other option was i could have just moved back and then my life would have been completely different <clears throat> oh yeah i mean uh i think so many of us when we strike out into a place that is other um mm -hmm. I, I graduated high school when i was 17 and i moved to new york city to go to nyu for example uh i i i just completely immersed myself in all that new york city had to offer mm-hmm uh, I didn't take advantage of it in the right way. I got myself involved in uh, opioids and found my found my way back home. Oh wow, and, that's and, quite a story. Yeah, well, it's it's more involved than that very yeah, imitated version. But mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I often, in often, I mean almost daily, wonder what would have what would have become of me had I not made the choice to continue getting high, right? And 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 not come back here. Uh, obviously, the 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 big parts of that is I never would have eventually have met my wife or had either mm-hmm. of my children, which mm-hmm. is very <laughs> important. It's weird when you think about stuff like that, like you kind of backtrack and you think about these forks in your life and you're like, if I didn't make this one decision, I could be somewhere completely different right now. And I think about that from time to time. And obviously in your case, like, you know, that's quite a, like a very dark fork to go down. Like, but had I never decided to, in, in those moments, indulge myself in very self-destructive behavior, I wouldn't have my daughter and son and my son's only four years old sleeping in the room next to me at 47, at 47 with a four year old. I mean, I I still got it, baby, but you know (laughs) what I mean? Like I, if I hadn't made what could be construed as uh, the worst decision any human being could have ever made. I never would have had him or my daughter who's in her twenties now, you know, like bad decisions can lead to something great, but I'm not telling people to go out and do heroin to get to something wonderful. But you know what I mean? You end up where you're supposed to be. And, and you having uh, gone from Canada to the UK uh, and going from, a band that I inarguably was fantastic in my opinion uh, to go on to something that I think is even greater and is more you than the well, previous the thing. Band. Yeah. I mean, like I've actually had a few conversations with people I know like, Oh, this is like, you're finally hitting a stride. I'm like, fuck, I'm 45. <laughs> Listen, it's you not know, like, it's, it, you know, like the classic stories, like, you know, punk band breaks out when they're 20, puts out one awesome album and then, they live in the shadow of that for the rest of their life. I mean, I mean, I've never put anything that's had that sort of splash at all, but I do feel like I'm feeling a lot more comfortable with what I'm writing. And I've kind of like sanded off the weird edges a little bit, not in a way that it's dull, but just enough. So I, I kind of feel in my, my sort of like my, my, my sweet spot, I guess. Well, your sense of song craft has certainly matured in in a very like in a vast clip like it just it it matured very quickly like record to record to record is like tectonic shifts just boom wow whoa i didn't see that coming and 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 then we get to now yeah i mean i've kind of like my i think like i remember like when like radio berlin was doing stuff we kind of kept getting you know, obviously roped in with bands at the time, like, oh, Franz Ferdinand, The Faint, you know, Interpol. But, I mean, I listen to those records now, and I was like, there's so much weird shit going on with that band. I, like, I think this would be a proper time to bust out an 8-7 time signature, don't you? <laughs> yes. And, like, and like, I have this, like, you know, Tim Andrell. I mean, he didn't, I did an interview with him about eight years ago, and he asked me, like, what do you think of Radio Berlin now with all this distance? And back at the time, there was like, people were like, oh, it sounds super 80s. But I th- listening to it, obviously, we'd already been in bands before that, but I think we were taking influence in that stuff. But at the time, there was this time in Vancouver where um, 
uh, like up until like the late 90s, there was no real good documentation of musicians doing stuff in that part of Canada because there was no like established record labels and all the recording studios were seemed to be run by people of a generation that were older. And then all of a sudden you had like engineers and producers that were within our age range starting studios that kind of got the zeitgeist of the time. But like the guy who recorded all those Radio Berlin records, Colin Stewart, he was really into like, you know, Palace or Drag City Records, yeah. you know, and like the sort of K-pop naturalistic recording vibe. Like he was in a Bob Weston and John Goodmanson and stuff like that. So when you take a band like us going into a studio like his, it comes out comes sounding completely different because we aren't recording with like Trevor Horn or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like the music just sounds like, yeah, there's like bits of this alternative 80s stuff, but the outcome is a lot different because of the way it was recorded and the fact that our playing chops had come from playing in these sort of mathy hardcore bands. So to me, yeah. when I listen to that now, compared to what bands are doing now, where there's this more of this, um, a lot of more home recording where bands can like really push the envelope of the sea of plugins they might have available to them. Like a lot of recordings now sound possibly more 80s than they did when Radio Berlin was just because like I remember being in the studio with sometimes like we should put like a, a gated snare on this track and it was like, oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> what, would the, what would they think at T-pop putting a gated snare? <laughs> <laughs> so there might be like a little bit of a slapback delay on the snare, but there's, it's, you wouldn't even notice it, right? But the, the thing is, though, like these comparisons that people came up with back then, uh, I remember reviewing in my own fanzine the first Radio Berlin record, and I said, this may be a direct quote, if I could remember everything I'd written, I called it uh, neo-futuristic, like, like indie spazcore. That's what I, that's what it was. Neo oh, that actually works actually. Neo futuristic yeah. indie spazcore, because everything about it felt like uh, exuberant explosions of of just unbridled mm -hmm. like joy, and then it would crash down on you. And it, but it, but it made sense together. And that that's that was like my first impression of of, of Radio Berlin, and that's why I really rallied the troops to drive so far north you know what i mean because <laughs> yeah, we, gotta, yeah. we have to see these guys go and it, it, you delivered i mean as you, you admitted in the beginning listening to one of those i think it was sibling within the last year mm -hmm. i think my this is my sense of humor at work there's the i think it's the third track off that record hearses i think it's called and it's my favorite track because you can audibly hear us speeding up <laughs> it's like <laughs> we're going a bit slow so you just hear that everything kind of creep to like a faster tempo when by the time the vocals kick in and i always have a laugh every time i listen to it. it's like you know you can envision us looking at each other in the studio like faster 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 <laughs> and then we didn't even bother taking another take it's like no it's good enough <laughs> People won't know, except for me. <laughs> well, see, when people were saying, like, okay, this is, like, the, the new post-punk revival thing, uh, to me, it had more in common with, like, 
you know, Jenny Piccolo, the Crimson Curse, get high. Oh yeah, we were all we were all kind of listening that stuff at the time. Yeah, yeah, that was player Chris. Um, he used to run a a record shop with two other guys in the nineties. That was inside a skate shop, so it was like, what? What's that word they use? It was an enclave. Yeah, within within the skate shop called Washout, and that's where they used. I mean, obviously, Vancouver had a lot of record stores, but that was like the only record store where you could buy that kind of music. Right. Where it's like, you know, you go like a more of a, a more of established indie store. They probably cover Discord and Kill Rock Stars and maybe some slightly smaller labels. But if you went to Washout, you could buy stuff on like, you know, Trouble Man, uh, yeah. Dern Blanston, uh, you know, Great American steak religion, all these yeah, like really one G, all that good yeah, shit. all that stuff. So I used to go in there all the time, and that's how I actually met Chris. Was like before I even moved to Vancouver, I just keep going in there, and he's like, "Oh, there's that guy from Vancouver Island." <laughs> we we obviously played in a band before Radio Blend for a short time, but yeah, like all of us came from that scene. Like we were all all you know playing all ages shows, basement shows, that kind of shit. And, you know, obviously as the band progressed, as I mentioned earlier, just kind of went to this, like, kind of, you're kind of pushed into this music scene, this sort of more sort of mainstream kind of industry scene that I think was kind of weirded us out a bit. But, yeah. And, and like, in, in regards to, like, thinking of that and, and putting it in context of the new record, the complete and utter evolution between your beginnings as opposed to now sonically very different but oh but, yeah i know like if people like got this new record and got the first off right when they're like even this, this is the fucking same guy yeah even like even my vocal styles change i think that was partly for technical reasons because I, I was like singing this kind of whispery style and then I started playing live and it, it didn't really work with me. So I started singing in more of a lower register, obviously for stylistic reasons. But I also didn't, I think I chose that logistically because I didn't want to be singing really histrionic high vocals while playing four synths at the same time. I wanted yeah. to like, I wanted like, you know, like for me playing live and writing, there's like this sort of, like almost like four or five way tug of war between all the aspects going on. So I'm like, well, I, and then I went a bit too low and then I started bringing the sort of the, sort of the, the note range up a bit higher. It's all been trial and error. It's like, Oh, that song I'm singing a bit too low because I was playing a show and I couldn't even fucking hear my own voice. Cause it's like, <laughs> in the monitor. so I'll bring it up a bit. This new record, I'm tried some different stuff. Like there's a lot more, talking kind of vocals and i think this is inspired by like have i was like i hang out with a lot of friends and especially in scotland they have this term here called patter which means someone's conversational skills like like if they're like good at telling stories and they have some good jokes they have good patter yeah so so i mean i've know i've met a lot of people here and when you listen to them talk it's the same when you watch a film and you, there's like a certain acting talent in that film. And you're like, I really like hearing their voice. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. Cause like, then I kind of was down this thought of like, it's weird how like 
we listen to music and everybody's singing all the time, but then when you actually hear them talk in an interview or in person, like their voice sounds really different. And sometimes they're, you might think their singing voice is nothing really to write home about, but then when you actually hear them talk, it's like, I really like listening to them talk. And then yeah. vice versa, you have people that are, have amazing voice and conversation but can't sing a note to save their life. So it's kind of just <laughs> fucking around with this concept of like, what happens if I just talk in bits and change the vocal style up? And, then, and obviously a lot of the stuff was being written during lockdown, so I had a lot of time to piss about and try new things, right? So... <laughs> well, I mean, and ergo, the comparisons that you've uh, garnered in regards to Gary Newman, because it, it has a lot to do with register, not so much yeah. mus musically, but r as far as register is concerned, some of his deliveries are akin to some of yours. And yeah. I think the both of you are very... Uh, Dark, Gary and, Newman, dark Gary, and creative, and, yeah. and, and that, that, that therein lies the comparison. When I compared you to Oingo Boingo, it's the angular sense. No, of I, I totally play. got it right away. I was like, no, that totally makes sense. I mean, I don't really listen to Oingo Boingo, but I'm familiar with their stuff. And I was like, yeah, I can totally see where you're coming from there. I'm a so massive, Danny massive Alf, Danny Elfman's like, like score work is quite like eclectic and bounces around a different thing. So it makes a logical progression from what he was doing in that band. And his new, his new solo record reminds, it, it gives me the impression almost as if he'd been listening to you, which I, <laughs> which I find fascinating. <laughs> I find that out. I'm curious. <laughs> it's good. It's very good. Um, it's, it's, it's inexorably good. And, I think, well, maybe he hasn't, but it gives me the impression he'd actually been listening to what you do because there are like it. There's these subtle cues where he sounds less like Oingo Boingo, more like Friday. <laughs> it's fucking amazing. Oh, wow. When you when you listen to it, please email me. Uh, okay, no, I will. I'll I'll put this on my little list here. I'm actually just I'm gonna write this down. It's gonna say Oingo Boingo, and then I'm gonna get up tomorrow and be like, "What the fuck is going on?" Here? Huh? I wasn't listening to Dead Man's Important. party last night. Oingo Boingo. Um, actually, I was like, I was actually listening to like that. I think was that I Assassin Gary Newman record recently. Yeah. Sometimes I just go through my record collection pick one out and this is when gary newman was going through his private detective phase yeah, <laughs> you, know, yeah. He's like, you know he's like like the fedora I actually listen to a lot of those kind of shows like because a lot of times when i'm working i can't i'm too busy to pick music and sometimes music can be distracting so actually over the last few years i've been listening to a lot of podcasts a lot of musician interviews um a lot of history podcasts you know to be like the rise of the Sumerians. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 you know, like, it's like with like some like really like smooth talking home counties British presenter that probably was on the BBC in the nineties. Oh, and yeah. then I also listen to a lot of like old radio shows like a uh, CBS Mystery Theater. Oh God, yes. Or like yes. those like private detective shows in the forties when it's like. Listen, Buster, there's only two ways out of this town. You know, like that kind of shit. Look here, see? <laughs> it's kind of weird listening because, like, you know, the, the way people use language back then was so uh, The whole, the James Cagney delivery. That's what it oh, is. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, totally James Cagney. I think he was probably a massive blueprint for a lot of that stuff for sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and what, when you take into consideration the, the melodrama of, of the way they presented themselves, then it also, it almost makes seventies and early eighties goth music make even more sense because like the, you're not, they weren't just simply emoting. They were really trying to put across this, 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 uh, feeling of utter de- detachment and dread. Uh, mm-hmm. which, is oh, yeah, I, definitely. which is what I dig about it in all honesty. Um, that's why I, my friends called me Pete the Wish because I had jet black hair, you know, down past my ass. And for a hardcore kid who hung out with like, like mostly skinheads, that was a very big deal back in the late 80s, early 90s. I was thinking that guy from Typo Negative, Pete. He's passed Pete away. Steel. Pete, Pete Steele. Pete Steele. I think it was Pete Townsend for a sec. I was like, wait a sec. He lived, he lived near me. We, were, we actually knew each other for a brief period before he passed okay. away. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I, he was a he was a very sweet, very very sad human oh. being. He was very uh, affected, um, okay. but yeah, you know that that's like he he kind of perfected that sort of uh, baritone. Uh, oh yeah, mercy like a baritone voice for sure. Very Sisters of Mercy oriented, uh, trying to be Andrew Eldridge in a metal band. Um, I, I always appreciated that even when you were at your most baritone, you weren't trying to uh, necessarily ape something like that. It was still more. I, for me, it's just. It's I natural. Trial and error. Cause I pick notes and then I'm like, that's too high. And then I'll kind of go down an octave. And then like, even like I have this thing when I record songs, I sometimes I do several versions of a song. Cause I was talking with someone about this recently, like you kind of get the song kind of starts a trajectory in one direction. And then you kind of get to this point where you start arranging it, adding stuff and it can possibly take any given direction from there. So sometimes yeah. I have a, I have a song where, and a lot of songs I write in my head, like I'll be doing something like checking out at the fucking grocery stores. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, washing dishes and like, oh, that's a great fucking thing. I, and then I'll just, just jump in and sketch it out. And I have like tons of stuff on my phone. It's just me going, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Like trying to record a melody. But anyway, you kind of get to this point where song forks and you take it one direction and then you finish it. And then you kind of get back to it's like, ah, something about this that's bugging me. And I didn't quite nail it. So sometimes I'll like do another version. And then when I play it live, I'll merge the versions together that's kind of a thing i've done on a few songs just because i just like there's some tracks where i haven't executed what i was intending to do just because like the the genesis of the ideas in my brain and you have to fucking funnel it through all like these synth tools to get there yeah but what to me like this new album has flavors of some very disparate. Oh yeah. They're, it's kind of like really, I took, I didn't even like it when I first finished. <laughs> Why? I think it's, this is the writing. best thing you've ever done. I, well, that's what people said, but I think it's cause the, like the record, bef- the logical predecessor to that, when push comes to shove, I was like, 
I'm going to write eight tracks and this song is going to complement this song. And it was all written kind of like, like in a very focused, studious manner. Whereas Intentionally, this one, yeah. Yeah, whereas this one was like, well, I can't go anywhere because I can't even hang out with a friend in the park because it's locked down. So I'm just going to make the song that's kind of this. And, and then there's a song called Just a Vapor on the record. It's, I want to write yeah. a song that sounds like, like I do this once in a while where I like, pick something I want it to sound like. It's like, I want it to make it sound, it sounds like Chrome meets metal motorhead. Yes. <laughs> but with like using just synths and no guitar. So that was that song. It was just like me having fun and pissing about. And I actually came up with like, it got ridiculous. Like at one, I was actually like distracting myself from writing the record by doing these. I tried to start a band during this time and I did all these other things. And I was like, it's like, I need to finish this record, but it's, I'm in too fucking deep now and there's too many ideas. <laughs> I've got like 25 ideas for songs and some of them are just literally, you like record something and then you revisit that recording and you're like, I have fucking no idea what I was doing. <laughs> so I'm just going to scrap that. And then some of the songs were like taking ideas for two or three songs and, you know, oh, these are, if I drop this down to D, it'll fit with this part, you know, like... So by the time I had like a eureka moment last summer, I was like, because I was like, I don't even know how these songs are working. This is like a fucking mess. And then I was like, oh, this and this and this and this and this song. And then I put it all together. I was like, I, don't. I always do this because I'm like super self-critical. It's like, I don't know if I like this. <laughs> but then I know I like it. If anything, I, I thought of it as like, it's going to be, if anything, it's going to be a document for what I was doing at the time. Rather than like, it's not like a progression per se, because it, where I go next, and I kind of know where I'm going to go next, is going to be different. But I kind of like that it is what it is, and there's some good stuff in there. And it's like a document of this period that, you know, everybody at the time was this unprecedented time in modern history where you can't leave your house and you don't know where the world's going to end up. You know what I mean? So that's why it makes so much sense for, you know, myself and I'm, I'm guessing many other people have told you this is the best thing you've ever done because it encapsulates the confusion and chaos and modeling that I think we were all really feeling. Yeah. And that's part of the way, that's part of why it's called the, the, why the title's called no. Yeah. I think it was just like, it was, came about this thing. I was like, it was middle lockdown. I was watching a movie and then um, I was talking to my head. I was like, should I work on some music tonight? I was like, no. No. But then I was like, then I was like, <laughs> but then I was thinking about it more. It stuck with me. And I was like, at the time you're reading all the news, it's all awful. You're like, no, no, no is such a strong word to refute something. No is also, um, it's sort of a counterpoint to the fact that I have really long album or song titles that almost come across as like little, as like little sort of like phrases, you know, like they're stanzas know, almost, you know, you know what your mother said, you never know what <laughs> might come next. You know, like <laughs> I do a lot of that stuff. And then also as a graphic designer, no is like, has so much more possibilities because it's just two letters. Ooh, yeah, do, like, weird stuff with it rather than like 10 words in a row that it starts looking more like a 
body of text rather than two shapes, you know? Yeah, it becomes almost like a study in opposites, too, because you have something circular and something angular, like directly next to one another. Uh, it, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like the yin and yang, but not quite, because one is very rigid, you know, N is very rigid, and O is, it's almost, you know. Yeah, and I put a little dot at the end of it. I don't know mm -hmm. why. I think because when I was, I put a little line that went from it because I was getting all abstract designy as I do, and then I just, just stayed there. And then, like, the only problem with having the period, or as they call it here in the UK, full stop. Full is stop. That, is that when you're typing the album title out, the autocorrect thinks it's the end of a sentence. Yeah. <laughs> it's like modern fucking problems. <laughs> well, the, the, the way I'd read it too, um, the fact that there is a full stop at the end mm -hmm. of no, it, it's not like an emphatic no. It's just no. 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 I, think, I think that might have been, I think actually maybe subconsciously was thinking that. Like I think if I was maybe more of an, like a, Oi punk band and exclamation mark would have been probably yeah. more suitable for the occasion, you know, like in like more of a distressed kind of typewriter font or something. Yeah, <laughs> like 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 the band Noise. There's an exclamation point after the OI and Noise, like oh, piss off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, and like that that title just came, and there's already some tracks that had the word no in it. I don't know, just seemed like it was the instinctual thing to do at the time so yeah like this as i said this whole record was kind of written in the very different circumstances than the previous ones and it's kind of interesting that we were coming out of this and even now we're like assessing how things have changed with like maybe even like on more topical matter like you know music in general you know you know in, like obviously probably like everywhere else like you like the uk is going through a lot of inflation at the moment and then as we obviously are. the whole brexit debacle oh god <laughs> yeah <laughs> well the, here's the thing too while we were kind of encamped uh in lockdown as it were the united states and england as the sister nations that they truly are Mm -hmm. um, became far more fascistic politically. Oh, yeah. um, Definitely. And, and, and obviously Trump became president before COVID, but uh, his rhetoric came to a, a, a miasmic crescendo during lockdown, you know, oh, because definitely. we were stuck home and, you know, his, his rhetoric was just, all you would see, all the sound bites were, were him saying, maybe you could just put bleach in there or some light inside oh, the a, body. A few, like, like, few like Trump recommendations that I would not try at home. Oh, no, I wouldn't try them under any circumstances. <laughs> but, you know, like you have Trump and then the prime minister just mirroring one another in uh, a symphonic display of uh, both stupidity and histrionics and just being so sure of themselves as idiots. No, like the UK is like still like past the hot potato with Brexit. Mm. I mean, well, I mean, Brexit. it's obviously like even like, like, um, 
sort of established think tanks and educational sort of bodies like, oh, no, it's definitely affected things, but like they're always trying to deflect it to other things, which do in part have their sort of role to play in where things are going now, like the war in Ukraine and uh, inflation and all these things. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, the Brexit's gone down to like the microcosmic level, like even just coming here, there's no tomatoes in the shop for two weeks and then like can't get certain things anymore if you want to ship something you have to fill in customs forms just to go into fucking france or whatever <laughs> oh yeah absolutely and uh when you think about it like we came to a point in history where someone like you know uh, someone who's who'd been prior to this a beacon of everything that i found not only sort of virtuous but artistic and beautiful about uh, lyricists and singers would have mm -hmm. been Morrissey. Mm -hmm. I love the Smiths. I loved Morrissey my whole life. And then like right around this time period, he became a cunt. <laughs> you know, he like, and there's no better way to put it. Like he, he's going on to talk shows and he's wearing like, I forget the name of the, the, the... I think they're called Britain First. Britain like, First. And, and they were basically... Like a fringe sort of... Sort of... Right party. I'm trying to think of another way to put it. I mean... Well, but what, nationalistic what, kind of right party. I wouldn't necessarily say they were fascistic, but they're just like Britain but, First. There's a name but, right there, right? But, the na but this is the same man who wrote the song The National Front Disco pissing on the yeah, national yeah. front, but wearing a pin of their modern equivalent on his lapel. I felt like I got kicked directly in the nutsack yeah. by someone who I, I had obviously blindly and stupidly put some mm -hmm. sort of um, uh, 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 moral stock into like, okay, this is the guy who got me into vegetarianism and then later veganism. Mm -hmm. This is the, the, the man who kind of wrote like a, 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 a big chunk of the soundtrack of my life. Yeah. And now he's a piece of shit. Like, Oh uh, yeah. It, I know it, he's probably just been like, you know, obviously probably achieving stardom and moving to a different echelon in the 80s it, it, I find it's a very common trope that some of the people just kind of get boxed off from these sort of touch points of reality and then maybe drift off in some weird directions in some cases it's interesting you know say someone like Julian Cope from yeah. Teardrop Explodes where he's yeah. writing massive books about Neolithic monuments and, you know, psych rock and kraut rock and all stuff. And some people just goes this really weird direction where, you know, like meatloaf or, <laughs> or Morrissey, the meatloaf Morrissey experience. <laughs> Even closer to home though, like, uh, was it the Baron from Amoebics who, uh, his band Tau Cross, Mm -hmm. He he basically started writing about uh, this this like fascist Nazi guy who uh, he was basically agreeing with this guy who was talking about you know eugenics and spirituality and stuff. I grew mm -hmm. up thinking Am Amoebics, this this you know very left leaning crust 
punk band that informed my favorite band of all time, Neurosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, like I'm thinking this guy's always going to be fucking on the money. Cool. Amoebics were amazing. Tau mm -hmm. Cross was an amazing band, but then he starts in with this like, you know, conspiracy theorist stuff. And it's all around this same time. Yeah, there's a lot of that stuff too, like people going down that road. Conspiracy theories, like you know, obviously the YouTube is quite the the breeding ground. I actually referenced that in one of my lyrics in the new second song of the new album. I was just yeah. watching, you know, or like it's like you know, like digital news, like you know, like Earth News Network, and they're talking about some how the pyramids were used to like channel aliens <laughs> like, <laughs> like beaming aliens in from like another galaxy and you know micro you watch, everybody here you watch stargate one too many times and now yeah. you know, everything looks weird to you but but yeah and I, see, I see where you're going with that you know like people can like pick up sort of opinionated or faulty routes of sort of news and information and then kind of be reaffirmed by that by continually absorbing similar type of news and that's very common now i mean that kind of crosses over into music a bit where you can like get into one specific genre and then be reinforced that that's all you need to listen to because uh, because it's like a self like self it's a helix yeah it's yeah, a self-perpetuating like, cycle yeah yeah I mean, this is like kind of, I noticed, I think when, by the time when I moved to London, I noticed that that sort of effect that the internet was having on a lot of things and even just more topical music. It's like, you can just go into Tumblr and, oh, like this, you know, like vaporwave. I mean, I listen to a lot of vaporwave just because it's... I like the fact that it's just weird and anonymous and makes no sense to what I've grown up with in yeah. music. Where it's like a scene, vaporwave, it's just weird lounge music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it's like, it is the modern Herb Albert and the uh, Tijuana Brass. But, oh, yeah, you know what I mean? Sure. Like, I just like it because I, I find it, I think it's more fascinating. It's just this, it, they kind of, push forward like supreme anon anonymity with it like you have no fucking idea who anybody is and some of it's like i'm kind of going off in like weird random threads here sorry about <laughs> no i this is my Remind favorite part of this show um my favorite part of the show yeah just like the the weird routing as it were yeah like just it's an interesting i think i just fascinated with the fact because you know we come from rock based music where it's yeah it's person's a personality and they're trying to, you know, it's all about personalities and like image of the band and blah, 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 to some degree. Right. But whereas vaporwave, it's just like, that is, it's the complete opposite. They've it's trumped, like, they trumped what witch house was trying to do. Cause witch house, it was always about like subverting and, and being like the antithesis of the good timey. Yeah. Cause stuff. I was in London when that was all kicking off and there was, I think I saw that band white ring. Yeah, and that band. That's the problem with these bands. Like, ooh, yeah, <laughs> like the capital O and the little lowercase O, and, and then there's like a symbol or two thrown in for good measure. Yeah, I remember when that was. I mean, I haven't really followed that genre for a little bit, it but died. I'm sure, 
I'm sure probably people are carrying it on, but it's mutated into other forms, much like everything else, right? So Sure. Well, folks, that is the end of part one of my discussion with Soft Riot. Tune in next week for the second half, where it only gets deeper and sillier. We have a blast together. Oh, man, I love Jake. He's so cool. (laughs) So please, by all means, stop in in one week's time and we will celebrate further the release of the new album, No, here on the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. So from all of us at 3.33 a.m. studios, he's been Jake. I've been Peter. You've been beautiful, and this has been the book of Very, Very Bad Things Podcast. Take care of each other, everyone. I'll see you next week.